May it please the court, counsel. My name is Joel Van Nerden. I'm here representing uh, the appellant in this matter, Mr. Andrew Ellis. The issue in this case is whether a tenant must provide written notice before asserting a so-called Fritz defense. The Court of Appeals ruled that no written notice whatsoever was required. Today, we ask that this court overrule the Court of Appeals, and we do that primarily based on, on two main arguments. Uh, number one, uh, Minnesota Statute Section 504B.385 is a codification of the Fritz case, and therefore the uh, procedures outlined in that statute must be followed in order to assert this defense or more accurately counterclaim, which I'll, I'll get into uh, further on. Uh, number two, in the, and in the alternative, even if this court disagrees that Section 504B.385 is a, a codification of Fritz, the court should still take this opportunity to clarify its ruling in the Fritz decision and uh, hold that there's at least some sort of written notice requirement before asserting uh, the Fritz defense. Counsel, I'm does just going to... Counsel, um, that, the, that the legislature here, the, does it matter here that the legislature did not affirmatively abrogate Fritz, which is at least arguably, and I think opposing counsel would argue, is a, a recognition of a common law defense? Uh, it, it does not matter that... Uh, could you repeat the beginning of that question? The, my question is, did the does it matter if the legislature did not abrogate Fritz in its statutory enactment? It, it, nowhere does it say that um, in, Fritz is no longer applicable or you must always have a written notice when you make a habitability defense. I mean, there's no language in the statute that suggests um, Fritz has been overruled or uh, somehow eviscerated. You're correct in that statement, uh, but the answer would be no. I don't think that matters uh, in this case. I don't think there's a, a requirement that it actually has to name uh, this, the case by name in order for the, the statute. And in this case, I don't think it, it abrogates Fritz at all. It simply says, in the Fritz decision, the court was not legislating. The court was saying, we're looking at 504B161, which is the uh, covenants of habitability, and the court said, here's, here's a way to enforce this. We're going to interpret this liberally as we're instructed to do. Here is a way to enforce these covenants. Uh, 504B.385, if you look at that, if you look at that statute, you look at Fritz, th there's nothing contradictory between the two. 504B.385 does not say anything that does, that does not uh, could not fit in with the, within the Fritz. Council, I want to ask you about that because there's a subdivision 11, and I'm just going to call it point three eight five, the the tenant uh, action, the rent escrow action statute. Um, what do you make of section 11 in there, where it says that um, the rights under this section are in addition to and do not limit other rights? I mean, to me, that expressly says that. Fritz can't be limited. Your Honor, if, if that's all that that subdivision said, I would agree with you. However, this, the, the subdivision says what you just read, and then it says, except, and that is followed by, except as is defined, except as is set forth or defined, I'm not sure the exact uh, term there, but except as set forth in subdivision one. So subdivision one is actually 
the, the whole heart of, of the statute that we're arguing. That's the part that requires the notice. That's the part that requires uh, the, the written notice, the 14 days, the opportunity to cure. That's true, but it can also be, <coughs> excuse me, read narrowly to require the depositing of rent, which Fritz does require. It could be read to require? Just narrowly, the first part of subdivision one talks about deposit the amount of rent due to the landlord. Exactly, and I would agree that's, that that's, is what Fritz requires as well, and, and so I, th I think that supports our argument that it is a, a codification of Fritz. But to go back to your question about subdivision 11, that, that, that first portion of that subdivision taken out of context looks like it says any other remedies you have that's fine, bring them. But that except obviously says this, it doesn't apply to the first subdivision. And the first subdivision, as, as you've uh, noted, as the court has noted, has uh, the, the different procedures, uh, including the rent payment, including the notice, and those type of things. So I do not think that subdivision 11 uh, would, would uh, favor uh, the respondent's arguments in this matter. In addition, well, it, why isn't the written notice that your client got sufficient? I mean, there was notice of a violation from the, the city in, inspector, right? So why, why isn't that sufficient? Well, for two reasons, Your Honor. Number one, if 504B385 is operative here, then it was, it was insufficient by the plain language of the statute, which says that even if there is this notice from the city, the tenant must file that notice with their rent. Assuming that the court says, well, okay, we don't agree with 504B is applicable here, even then, if you look at the, the way that the notice was given as far as uh, what was included in the notice and the timing, they would not, uh, they would not be sufficient. And I'll give you an example. Uh, the, the documents, I'm sorry, the uh, habitability issues included in that document, in that notice, include things, or I should say do not include things that the court relied on when it granted the abatement. So it, didn't, so it did not provide the full notice. Uh, and a perfect example is the court relied on this family of raccoons allegedly living in the property uh, as a grounds for abatement. The notice from the city makes no mention of any vermin infestation, let alone a family of raccoons. So, he, so certainly it wasn't a complete notice about the actual issues. Uh, further, the Council, don't you agree that they don't have to list out everything? I would, I would agree that the, the tenant uh, doesn't have to list out everything with, with uh, any kind of particular detail, but I would imagine that, or I would argue that they must list things well enough for the, for the landlord to correct the problem. They can't just say we have habitability issues. So the fact that there is nothing about any vermin infestation, now if they had said we, we have some problems with some animals, and they didn't say, we have a family of raccoons. Uh, yeah, I think that's close enough, but I don't think the landlord can be, particularly when you're talking about uh, uh, the, the nature of the relationship where you've got a, la a tenant who has a right to privacy, and by the very nature, the landlord is supposed to respect that. So the tenant has to give some sort of notice that is, that is broad, or I should narrow enough for the landlord to make the corrections they're asking for. But to that, also to that point of the notice, there's no, there's no temporal connection. The notice was uh, from the city was given in October of 2016. Uh, the, no, the city said, you have 30 days to make these corrections. We will check back and take further action if they're not done. 
there was, there was no further correction. There was no further uh, action taken by the city. There was no further written notice by the city. There was no further written notice by the tenant. In fact, there was, there was never written notice, but particularly here after that inspection, there was no further written notice. And the landlord uh, testified that he did make corrections. Now, whether these- the, But the district court found that not to be credible. Correct, and, and, and even if that is, is not the fact, even if that's the fact that the corrections were not made uh, to a satisfactory level, what, what we can see from the way this played out was that, see so if October, November, December, January, February, the tenant continues to pay his rent for five months. And then in March, suddenly, after uh, five months, after he made this complaint, after the landlord received notice, he mysteriously stops paying his rent. So to say that he was withholding it based on that notice that the landlord Perhaps received. it's because that's when he finally reached his limit. He'd been waiting and trying to work and trying to work and there was a number of things listed. I mean, I look at the list and it's pretty significant. That's, that's certainly one interpretation, but the landlord shouldn't have, should not have to guess at what's going on uh, in the property. The landlord should have uh, notice. The notice should be specific enough for the landlord to actually correct the problems. And the, uh, because assuming the landlord had gone and corrected the problems that were given in that notice, the raccoons were still there. A lot of the uh, would have still been there because there was no notice uh, about these particular issues. Uh, so I think that the time in itself, the time lapse in itself is not dispositive, but I, it certainly seems to show that the landlord uh, was not uh, apprised of the situation. It was somewhat, uh, at, at least the notice by the city is not going to uh, save the tenant in this matter uh, from providing notice himself. But council, it says that the repair the windows that are painted shut, they don't stay in an open position, repair, replace the handrail, which I think was tied together by a cord, um, repair the front entry door, which didn't have a lock, identify and fix the source, the source, of, the source of the moisture problem, as well as repairing damaged surfaces, repair the peeling paint, replace the non-functioning smoke and carbon monoxide detectors, repair the exterior stairs, which had deteriorating wood. I mean, it goes on and on. That seems to me like that's a lot of substance in the notice. It, it is, and if those were the issues that the court uh, granted rent abatement on, I would agree with you. But again, the court granted abatement on, on completely different issues. There, there is overlap, certainly. Uh, but the court, you can't get notice of, about, about one thing, and then when you, uh, whether or not he corrected those, but regardless of whether he corrected those, the court can't then grant abatement on a completely different issue that the landlord didn't have notice of. Council, I'm trying to figure out why, where the unfairness to a landlord is in terms of not requiring notice. Um, now, typically if somebody withholds rent, wouldn't you agree they typically tell the landlord why they're doing it? That, that's what I would do, certainly. I, I, uh, I mean, I re that's what a reasonable person would do. But if, if rent gets withheld and the landlord doesn't know why, wouldn't it be incumbent on the landlord to get in touch with the tenant and say, you haven't paid your rent? Is there some particular reason? That would be best practices, but the law doesn't require that at all, Your Honor. The law simply says once that tenant is late, the landlord has the right to bring an eviction for non-payment. Well, you're rent. saying the law requires the tenant to notify the landlord, but not, not require the landlord to inquire? I mean, why, why do we need to have a new 14-day notice requirement for um, an alleged Fritz 
violation? The I don't I don't I mean is is the problem landlords are just they just lack the information about how they're violating the breach of habitability? Uh, oftentimes I think that is the case, uh, Your Honor. The the landlord again because of the nature of the fact that the the tenant has exclusive control over the property, the landlord uh, has to rely on the notice from the tenant. Uh, and yes, the the landlord. Uh, should ask why rent is being paid, and I and I can <coughs> tell the court that in many cases, uh, no response is given. Uh, well, then that's the landlord files for eviction, and then we'll we'll get some. If there's a habitability issue, we'll get some information at that point, right? That that's correct. And, and that, what's that's the, what's the problem with getting the information at that point? A, a couple of issues. First of all, the the, the truncated nature of the the. Um, uh, the expediency that that is demanded by a eviction action does not provide enough notice for a landlord. For example, in this case, the landlord went to trial and got the exhibits and the witness list uh, after close of business on the eve of trial. So if the landlord wanted to even challenge any of these or have somebody look at them, there was no possible way for him so to do so. So I think you're exactly right. This is an expedited proceeding. So how is a tenant supposed to give 14 days notice once a landlord starts an eviction proceeding when the whole eviction proceeding is supposed to be done in less than 14 days? Well, Aren't you, wouldn't the rule of law that you're proposing just foreclose a tenant from raising a habitability issue at the time the tenant receives the notice of eviction? A, a cursory review of the of the uh, statutes would appear that way, but that's not the case at all. Uh, for example, uh, 504B.385 actually says, if a, if a tenant is bringing an action under this statute and the landlord is bringing an eviction, the two cases must be consolidated and heard together at the eviction. And 504B.385 does require- Yeah, but I'm not assuming two. Let's assume just one case, which is the landlord pursuing eviction. And and- under the rule of law that you're proposing, the tenant would have to give 14 days notice of a violation of habitability. But the whole case is gonna be done within 14 days, so how can you give a 14 day notice at that point? Because, let, let, I think maybe, maybe an example would probably be the best way to explain the procedure. Let's say I'm a tenant, and I've got a problem with whatever, Raccoons. peeling paint. <laughs> right, exactly. So I, I give the landlord the 14, I give the landlord written notice. I give the landlord 14 days in which to make that correction. After those 14 days lapse, I withhold my rent. The landlord at that point now has a legal basis to bring a claim. All right, the 14 days notice works in your hypothetical, but try, now try my hypothetical. There are raccoons up there and I decide to withhold my rent and the landlord immediately seeks to evict me. And, and I haven't even had the chance to convey all the reasons why I'm withholding the rent, one of which is raccoons. Am I not going to be kicked out of that place before the 14 days elapses? Uh, well, in, in practical terms, no, you're not going to be kicked out in 14 days. That that just doesn't happen generally. I mean, maybe I would have lost my right to complain about the raccoons because I didn't get 14 days notice. Again, the the way it works is because the tenant can, while while it's actually the landlord that is bringing the claim for for the for the uh, eviction. It's the tenant who decides when they withhold the rent. Therefore, the tenant decides when the landlord has the ability to bring that claim. And, and yes, the, if there's raccoons in, in your hypo, hypothetical, let's say there's raccoons, the landlord has to give, or the tenant rather, gives the landlord written notice 
and waits the 14 days. I'd like to go back to the question that I started with because I, I think there's a foundational issue that Justice Littlehug's hypothetical gets us to and it's the argument opposing counsel makes as well. What is the problem with the fact that we might conceivably have two different avenues here, an affirmative defense under Fritz um, to a claim, um, uh, a habitability claim, and an affirmative right for a tenant to say, I'm going to take affirmative action to deal with this problem under the statute. Here's my notice, and, and I'm going to withhold rent, and I'm going to follow the statutory steps. I mean, what, why are those two things not... Why can't they happen? Uh, I can't, well, why can't they both be in existence as opposed to your theory that it has to be a notice that applies in either case? Justice Anderson, I think that they are both available. Uh, I think the term Fritz defense is really caused a lot of problems in, 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 in analyzing this, particularly even with the, with the lower court here. The term Fritz defense is not actually I did, a, I did a Westlaw search on Fritz defense. It's only found, that term together is only found in the case below. Our, our, uh, that's, that's not a, a, a claim that's actually part of, of the law, generally speaking. Uh, if you go to the language, I mean, the language of the opinion, and, and your, your point's well taken. Um, uh, there isn't a lot of law that deals specifically with this particular issue. The language of the opinion is clearly crafted in terms of um, uh, if the property's not habitable, um, you can withhold rent, um, but you have to escrow it. I mean, that, 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 looks like a, that looks like an affirmative defense to me, whether those magic words were used or not. A couple of things. First off, uh, uh, footnote five in, in Fritz specifically anticipates that, this, that, the, that that case will be modified and additional rules will be uh, brought in as uh, necessity or as experience dictates. But the Fritz defense is not really a defense at all because it seeks affirmative relief. For example, in this case, if it was truly a Fritz defense, what the court would have done was said, your case is dismissed. You can stay in the apartment. But that's not what the court did, and that's not what the courts do in these Fritz defense cases. The courts granted the affirmative uh, uh, re relief of retrospective uh, rent abatement or retroactive rent abatement, I should say, prospective rent abatement. Uh, it lets the... Uh but, but, Council, let, let, let me just add to that. I, I'm sure you're correct about that, but I'm not sure that's the entire universe. And what I mean by that is I suspect when opposing counsel gets up here, she's going to tell us that there are many, many cases where Fritz is applied simply as an affirmative defense, uh, where... Uh, rent abatement uh, is, is is allowed, and I will I will say now again just because and you guys you will know this as practicing attorneys just because we do it as practicing attorneys doesn't make it right, but I started my practice in '79 and what I did for many years was landlord tenant law, and uh, it was shortly after Fritz came down, and so we were frequently asserting, and I represented tenants, we were frequently asserting what we called as the Fritz affirmative defense. And that's how the district courts uh, handled it and handled it that way for many, many years. And I think in most instances still do handle it as an, as an affirmative defense. And so I, I, I guess I share, and I'm not sure I got you, maybe I cut you off, didn't get an answer to Justice Anderson's question, why don't those two, can't those two exist simultaneously? Because it seems to me when the rent at rascal statute came into being, 
it was seen and has been used as a separate complementary uh, remedy for tenants. They're very different in terms of the tenant asserting uh, an action, an affirmative action, versus asserting a Fritz defense, affirmative defense. The, the um, as far as the affirmative defense uh, point of, e even, even affirmative defenses, there's a reason that affirmative defenses must be pled uh, in, uh, under the rules of civil procedure, must be pled in the answer, because an affirmative defense is adding a new information that the party that is bringing the actual claim should know about. And again, with these, with these uh, expedited procedures, there's, in fact, there's no requirement in an eviction action that an answer even be pled. The defendant can just show up and answer. So, and even if it's an affirmative defense, it's still it's still a bit of an ambush for the landlord going in saying, "I'm going to, uh, I've got my uh, ledger here. I'm going to prove that this tenant owes me money." And they show up, and suddenly there's all this testimony about the habitability, and and that's a, that's a problem that the landlords have to deal with, even as an affirmative defense. But again, I understand the courts refer to it as an affirmative defense. At least the lower courts do. But in reality, that's not how it operates. 504B.3, the way I look at it is, is 504B.385 provides an action, uh, provides the rent escrow action. If, if that action is asserted as a counterclaim, it's a simply referred to as a Fritz defense. Although, again, I would say it should be considered a counterclaim because they're well, asserting but, the but same thing. But why claim. isn't just as a plain language matter, why aren't these two separate things? Because it seems to me, uh, point, uh, the, the escrow statute talks about an action brought under this statute, and that's, that is what it is. That is not what withholding rents under, under Fritz is about. It is not an action, because we think of action, and I think uh, your opponent defined, uses various definitions, but I think typically we think of as lawyers and judges, an action is a proceeding. It is an action that is brought pursuant to a summons and complaint. That, that's how we typically think of it. And I, so why isn't just as a plain language matter um, that correct? The, uh, again, the, 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 it is action under 504B.385. Uh, Fritz, whether you, you say it's part of the statute or not, requires the rent to be paid into court as well. Uh, so I guess you could consider Fritz an action in that regard uh, too. But, but I think the way, again, the way it plays out is that it's, it, seeks affirmative, it seeks affirmative relief. It's not saying dismiss this claim. It's saying dismiss this claim and we want retroactive rent abatement. We, so, so it ends up that the, the landlord, for, in this case, the landlord ended up with a judgment against him from a defense. I, I don't think Count, that's a defense. Well, but I, I, just want, I just want to note, though, that the court itself characterizes, I mean, and maybe you're right, maybe your argument is that that they characterize it one way, but it works a different way in practice. But in two different places, at least that I've been able to find, it talks about um, breach of the statutory covenants is available uh, as a defense to an unlawful detainer action. And then we believe the language of the unlawful detainer statute is broad enough to permit a tenant to assert breach of the statutory covenants as a defense. And they lay out you know, the escrow procedures and so forth. So um, that, that's what we... That, is that Fritz you're reading from, Your Honor? Right, and in, and in Fritz, I think that did work that way because, the, because in Fritz, I don't believe there was any sort of affirmative relief awarded to the, the, the tenants in that matter. Uh, 
this case is much different than that. This case there was, and and just practically speaking, I think that's how it's it's sort of evolved. And so I would agree that that's the the court does say it's a defense. I just I also agree that I don't think that that's how it's been interpreted or how the courts have been implying it. And simply because the lower courts uh, have been uh, misapplying it doesn't doesn't somehow make it uh, bootstrap it into being what the law actually is. Did you appeal that issue here, though? I mean, did you? I don't think you asked us to reverse some of the relief because it went beyond the Fritz defense. Uh, Your Honor, I, di I did. We, I did not ask for specific relief uh, or specific uh, specifically uh, challenged the specific relief. Uh, however, I think that was implied. We challenged the fact that they were entitled to any relief at all. Uh, under under the Fritz defense because there wasn't this notice. So uh, I think implied in that was a challenge that whatever relief was given was was inappropriate. Let me just add one more thing about the action that, um, you know, point 385. Um, you know, Minnesota statute 645.45 defines action for any, you know, when it's used in um, um, statutes in, in Minnesota, and it's, it defines actions as, quote, any proceedings in any court of this state, end of quote. So I think that supports the idea that, a, that an action is more, a proceeding has a, you know, a larger context than just a specific defense. Uh, right, I, I would agree that uh, uh, action is, is, a broad, is a broad term, which is why I believe that the uh, Fritz defense, if you want to call it that, is is an action would be an action under under that definition. Okay. Well, I thought your argument was that um, an action included a, a, like a def a defense in a in a greater proceeding, but your argument is really the Fritz thing is a larger action. Yeah. Yes, Your Honor. I think. The, the, the court below made this big distinction between action and defense, and they were saying that 504B 3.385 applies only to actions, not defenses. And so I think under the statute that uh, the court just noted, uh, even, even if it's an affirmative defense under Fritz would, would still be an action. Can I, can I bring it, uh, you back to kind of one of the places we start, which is subdivision 11? and that language except is provided in subdivision one that you pointed out. Do we know, do, do we know anything about the history of why that language was added or really any legislative history? I mean, is there anything that you can share with us about what happened in 1999 that they put this in place? Did the legislature talk about Fritz? Do we know anything about that? Are you, are, are, uh, I'm asking about legislative history because I, I, there's an, I think arguably there is a ambiguity in this statute. And so I'm trying to understand what the legislature was trying to do when they put this defense in place, this, uh, this action, excuse me, in place, the 385 action. Uh, Your Honor, I, I did some, some searching on this and there isn't a lot of, at least that I could find, a lot of legislative history on, on this particular statute. Uh, so I guess your answer is no, I don't have much for you there. To, to my uh, second point here in the few minutes remaining, even if the court disagrees with, with our analysis here and says 504B.385 is, uh, is not a codification of Fritz, uh, the court should still take this opportunity to at least explain Fritz and hold that there must be some sort of written notice uh, to the landlord before 
a, a so-called Fritz defense is so, asserted. So why a written notice? Uh, let's say I got raccoons up in the attic and I called the landlord and said, there are raccoons up in the attic. And the landlord doesn't deny that the call was made. Why should the landlord be able to uh, rely on the defense of no written notice? Your Honor, written notice is, is certainly, from a public policy perspective, going to be preferable. Uh, written notice with throughout Chapter 504B is, is the rule, not the exception. Uh, and, and I think that's because you avoid all these issues of proof. If we go into court and we have to, and then it's just a landlord saying, I didn't get notice, tenant saying he did, then the court's got to make this, this determination as, a, as, as a, uh, an antecedent. Uh, is, it, is a tenant entitled to written notice from the landlord for a particular period of time before an eviction action can be started? Uh, the landlord, the, the tenant isn't entitled to uh, notice within the, uh, the lease that's given. The lease will, will generally tell the, the uh, tenant. But, most but leases no. say you can be evicted if you don't pay the rent regardless of any notice? I mean, yeah, if they're late, if the tenant is late with the rent, that's correct, Your Honor. There is no written notice, although as a practical matter, there usually is, but, but that's not required. The tenant can be evicted with no notice. I shouldn't say evicted. An eviction action can be brought. Of course, at that point, there'll be a summons. There'll be, uh, there'll be notice at that point. Why should we, we require written notice from a tenant about a habitability problem if the landlord doesn't need to give written notice before evicting? That... That's the, that's the way the legislature has laid out uh, Chapter 5. Yeah, but you're, you're not talking about the legislature right now. You're talking about us putting a gloss on Fritz and saying a written notice from the tenant is required before you can assert a, a Fritz defense. Your Honor, I think those two, those two situations are quite distinguishable. In one, you've got a, a, a tenant who certainly knows, or at least certainly should know, that they have rent due every month at a certain at a certain time. And you've got a landlord who knows, or most certainly should know, that the premises have to be habitable. And, and the landlord does know that, but the d landlord doesn't know if they are habitable unless the landlord is invading the privacy of the tenant every single month and ch checking from wall to ceiling to make sure that there's not any issues. That's the difference. It's predictable. It's it's uh, something that everybody knows. The first of the month, there's rent. The landlord certainly doesn't know. Gee, I better go check uh, this apartment and make sure there's uh, no problems with peeling paint in their bathroom. I mean, it's just something that the landlord wouldn't know without without that. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have five minutes for rebuttal. Ms. Sauer. May it please the court. My name is Elizabeth Sauer, and I represent the respondent tenant in this action, whose name's been uh, removed from the caption due to the expungement that was granted by the district court. At issue in this case are a landlord's duties to ensure that the homes that they rent are healthy and safe, and the ability of the tenant to raise a defense in an eviction action when a landlord fails to honor those legal and contractual obligations. The district court and the court of appeals both correctly determined that the procedural requirements for rent escrow action do not apply to the affirmative defense raised pursuant to Fritz v. Worthen in an eviction. Appellant is asking this court to impose a new 14-day written notice requirement. It's a precondition to raising a defense pursuant to Fritz. And this proposed rule 
would create a new and frankly gaping exception to the health and safety protections of Fritz and also Minnesota statute 504B.161. 504B.161 is the current iteration of the statute that was interpreted by Fritz. And it's the statute that's really at the core of this case. It imposes specific health and safety obligations onto the landlord and the legislature thought that this was so important that they made them lease terms which are incorporated by law into every residential tenancy in the state of Minnesota. And they went even further to say that these lease terms may not be waived or modified and that they shall be construed liberally. Can I, can I ask a question? So if, um, if the lease were to require written notice that this provision of habitability was not was being violated, would that be a modification? I believe so, Your Honor, it would. So, um, that's Ill, so you can't include in a lease a requirement of a written notice? No, because it, I mean, it places conditions under which the landlord is going to comply with their obligations under the law, which is essentially a modification of, of those provisions. And would that be the kind of modification then that they're talking about in subdivision 11 of 385 where they're actually allowing a modification in subdivision one to include those kind of written, those terms that you have to give, this is the case where you'd have to give written notice because now the statute's saying that? No, Your Honor. I believe that Why? Uh, subdivision 11 in 385, uh, specifically what that refers to is that it says that rent may that it doesn't limit uh, any of the remedies available to the landlord or the tenant except as provided in subdivision one. And that really refers to subdivision 1D of uh, 504B385 that states that the landlord or that the tenant may not withhold rent while a rent escrow action is pending. Uh, and because that provision does in fact impact a, a tenant's rights. So, so you know, it says subdivision one, it's limited to subdivision one D? Well, that is the provision of subdivision one that really modifies the landlord or the, the tenant's rights uh, that were existing at the time that the statute was enacted. Um, otherwise, frankly, the language becomes quite circular and doesn't even make any sense to include that language if the rent escrow statute just replaced Fritz, as is being argued. Um, so essentially the landlord, the appellant in this case is arguing that landlords cannot be held responsible for health and safety defects in their homes unless and until 14 days written notice has been provided to the landlord and only if the, the tenant has retained a copy of that written notice. Um, this doesn't, it, regardless of whether the landlord actually knew or whether the landlord should have known about the defects that were in the, in the property. Uh, this. So I wanted to ask you about the language in Fritz um, that the court expected additional rules to be adopted to meet any problems encountered. Um, do you think the, the court, first of all, was, was the court thinking about the legislature would adopt additional rules there? And then, um, you know, that, then the other side's argument is that this rent ex, escrow action is one of those additional rules. And, and I think you've partially just addressed that, but could you, could you answer those questions, please? 
Certainly. So I guess I, I would only be able to speculate as to what the court had in mind when they wrote that in the decision. I think the court in the, in the Fritz decision clearly thought about quite a number of things and very specifically uh, referenced some rules of civil procedure that would maybe be involved in uh, posting rent that had been withheld into court. Um, the mechanics of actually doing this procedure might be w one of the things the court had in mind. Possibly, yes. And I would say that that has been addressed uh, in rule, Minnesota Rules of General Practice 608, which does specifically uh, account for posting of rent into court um, while a Fritz defense is being asserted. Um, and I don't, I'm sorry, there's a second question there that I... Oh, well, it was just, I, I mean, I think you had already talked about why um, the rent escrow action statute isn't a codification of writ, Fritz. You said the language, it would be circular, and but if there's anything to add there. Yes, I mean, the rent escrow statute, there is absolutely no legislative history that indicates that it was intended to replace Fritz, and I think that subdivision... And nothing in the plain language either. And, no, and to the and, contrary. And that's important because we have a presumption against changing the common law unless the legislature does so explicit, expressly or by necessary in, implication. Cor Correct. Am I right there? Yes. Okay. And uh, I think actually the legislature went, step, went a step further and said this isn't to replace Fritz, that Fritz doesn't go far enough, that we need to create this cause of action that gives tenants the ability to go into court without having to sit around and wait for their landlord to file an eviction against them and risk homelessness and all of the collateral effects that that carries with it. Um, and specifically said in subdivision 11 that this is not intended to limit or, uh, or change any of the existing rights, which would include a defense under Fritz. Uh, to go even further, the legislature also specifically did not include the rent escrow statute in the specifically enumerated sections of 504B, which control the procedures in an eviction action. And to include that would be, there's no, there's no basis to include that here based on the plain language the, that the legislature has set forth. So how would it work to transplant the 14-day uh, notice requirement in 385 into the context of an eviction action? Um, I, an eviction action is an expedited proceeding. Is, is my concern valid or not valid that uh, there might be some timing problems? Yes, it's extremely valid, Your Honor. There is, it doesn't, the timing doesn't work. Why not? Uh, well, because the very best case scenario, uh, you know, when an eviction gets filed, it is going to be set out uh, 10 to 13 days after it's filed. The tenant doesn't have to be served until seven days before the initial appearance. So even if in the best case scenario it gets filed, the case is set out 13 days and the tenant gets served that very same day, they only have 13 days before their initial appearance where they can assert the defense. And if the timing, they'd, they'd be one day short. In most cases, it's much closer to seven days notice that are actually being provided. And if it is seven days notice, um, then, and, and they're, they're unable to assert that defense at that point. Uh, a trial, if, if there is a continuance of the trial, which usually happens, that can be no more than six days after the first appearance. So even if you look at 
you know, if the tenant receives the minimum, the seven days notice, which is very frequent, uh, and they certainly haven't had 14 days in which they've been able to give written notice to their landlord before that first appearance, and they wouldn't even have had 14 days by the time they get to trial, uh, because that would be a maximum of 13. Um, how do you respond to the concern uh, expressed by opposing counsel that without a written notice requirement um, for habitability defenses that landlords may face trial by ambush? I would say that that argument particularly rings hollow in this matter, Your Honor, where not only was there written notice of the vast majority of de habitability defects in the home, uh, but there was also testimony which was found credible by the district court that the tenant was calling the landlord over and over and over again for a year. And um, you know, uh, counsel has addressed, stated, well, there was no way to know about the raccoons living in the home. Well, at one point, the, test, the record reflects that uh, the appellant sent out someone to look at that problem who, in fact, observed the problem. I'm not sure if it was... And there was a maintenance person sent out and I think sent out a second time with to lay traps. Am I correct? I believe so, yes. But at some point they said that they had to go get a ladder and they left and never came back. So ignoring the problem is not a, reason, is not a reasonable way to believe that the problem has been addressed. Um, you know, I, I realize your points regarding this case, but there's sort of the general, more policy-oriented question, which is are we seeing a problem with landlords being ambushed in housing court with habitability defenses? No, Your Honor, because this case is very typical, uh, and most of the time, tenants are giving notice. A lot of it is, is verbal notice, um, and I think that in the very unlikely case where a landlord truly just has no no knowledge and no reason to know about the health and safety defects in the home. Uh, that's something that the district court could take into consideration uh, as when they're weighing how much, if any, of the rent is due, uh, and that could impact the, the final outcome. But to say you don't even get to raise this defense unless you have given written notice deprives a tenant of the ability to present evidence about the numerous ways that a landlord maybe should know or would actually know about. Is there anything that would prevent a um, judge in district court from continuing the proceeding based on the agreement of the parties so they could better communicate, figure out what the habitability problem is, and then maybe come back to court? I mean, is there anything preventing a continuance in a housing court action? It would have to be upon agreement of the parties. Mm -hmm. uh, the statute does specifically state that a trial can be continued for no more than six days. Oh. Uh, and the idea that written notice is required, should be required, um, sort of it shifts the burden to the tenant in a way that's inappropriate given the plain language of Minnesota statute 504B-161. But to clarify your previous answer, so if a landlord believes the landlord's getting ambushed, can the landlord procure a continuance for six days to find out what the facts are? They could, or they Within could, the discretion of the court? Certainly, or they could present evidence that they had no idea and had no reason to know about 
about the problems and that I imagine would impact the determination of the trial court. Um, but there are really, there's a myriad of ways in which a landlord can find out about these problems and they can't just sit on that knowledge. They have to act on it. And you know, some of them have nothing to do with the tenant. I mean, it can be written notice, it could be verbal notice. It could be that the landlord's been making inadequate repairs for, for example, a water intrusion for years and they just keep painting over it and never figuring out where the water intrusion is coming from or addressing the likely mold and other issues that are accumulating because of that. Um, there could, the tenant could be reporting symptoms that the tenant isn't even aware is you know, indicating a larger problem. They're not, uh, a tenant is not necessarily a general contractor. They don't necessarily know all of these things, but it's a landlord's obligation to ensure that they are in performing proper maintenance on the home. And, and I do agree that uh, sometimes withholding rent itself might be a cue to a landlord that, that there is a problem. And while there is no written notice requirement for a landlord to uh, reach out before they commence an eviction action, uh, it, it, it's generally not a bad idea and is certainly within the control of the landlord to do that and ensure that there are no repair problems before they start this eviction action. Um, the, the imbalance in power between a landlord and tenant is something that is specifically, it's recognized um, in those protections that have been put in place in the statute and in the case law. Um, tenants who are living in homes that are in ill repair have very few options. They don't have resources, otherwise they would not be living in that kind of situation. And it's the reason that this particular business model works for landlords. Um, this business model of deferring or avoiding any kind of maintenance or repairs. Um, you know, tenants are in, this social science shows that tenants who are in eviction court are experiencing trauma in various parts of their lives. Um, they're disproportionately single parents, have experienced domestic abuse, they've got health issues, disabilities, which may be caused or exacerbated by living in substandard conditions. And you know, to say, well, well, why didn't you, you know, write up a formal notice and make a photocopy of it for your files before you gave it to your landlord is the wrong question, especially when- Isn't that assuming that the individuals are of a certain level? I mean, not everybody has access to a computer. Not everybody knows how to write that notice. Not everybody even speaks the language. Absolutely, for all those reasons. And also just knowledge of, well, oh, I have to do this. Um, why isn't enough to just call my landlord and tell him that's how my landlord communicates with me? Or maybe it's every month when the landlord comes to pick up the rent and the tenant is saying, please make these repairs. Uh, and, and the landlord is just ignoring it. And again, given the clear obligations in 504B161, it's really that burden is on the landlord. It's, it cannot be shifted to the tenant. Um, The facts of this case really very much mirror the facts in Fritz. Uh, this, is, this is your run-of-the-mill Fritz defense that is asserted and, and needs to be asserted because a rent escrow action is, is a wonderful 
option for tenants who are aware of their rights and aware of the ability to use that um, and who have the ability and, and the interest in actually getting down to court. Um, but for tenants who are living in substandard conditions that their landlord is not repairing, they, even if they don't know their rights, even if they haven't given written notice, they're still protected and the landlord is still obligated to make those repairs. The issues specifically referenced by Fritz and discussed it at some length. Uh, you know, Fritz was a development in the common law, uh, really motivated by a change in the statutory law, by the creation of the statutory covenants of habitability, uh, which are now found at 504B161. And they recognized that where the land, where the landlord has not lived up to their obligations to maintain basic health and safety standards in the home, that the rent or part of it is not due. And Fritz then went one step further and said, and it can be raised as a defense because, in an eviction case, because it would be, it would work contrary to this clear legislative intent in 504B, now 504B. And you're getting that legislative intent from the plain language as opposed to other extraneous sources? I'm sorry. Yeah. You said the clear legislative intent, and you're getting that from the language as opposed to extraneous sources of legislative history? Well, I'm getting that from Fritz, Your Honor. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. I guess that's what Well, can I just come back to this? So I just want to understand your argument on except as provided in subdivision one under subdivision 11, where they make that reference. And as I understand your argument, then all they're talking about is the last sex sentence of subdivision, what the legislature's talking about is the last sentence of subdivision 1D, mm -hmm. which says that you have to pay rent to the landlord. But Fritz already required that. And so why, so why would the legislature, well, so there has to, it seems like there has to be something else the legislature's talking about when they make a reference to subdivision 1. Well, I guess I would disagree because actually what Fritz says is that a tenant may withhold their rent in reliance on this defense. And once the eviction has been filed, that the court may order posting of the rent that has been withheld into court pending an ultimate determination. But the last sentence says, as proceedings are pending under this section, I guess the residential tenant must pay the rent to the landlord or to the court. So it's, the last sentence is talking about pending proceedings, right? Yes, pending rent escrow proceedings. So in a rent escrow action, a tenant must pay the, when they file the, the petition, they at that time post rent into court. I, I understand that. But in Fritz, basically when they're withholding their rent, once those proceedings start, Fritz says they have to pay that rent into court. Fritz says yes, that the court may order that. So how can that be the, what the only thing that the reference to subdivision one is? And those are the same things. Is it because Fritz um, Fritz didn't say Fritz didn't address rest, rent escrow actions at all? No, because rent escrow actions did not exist. So Fritz was saying you have to withhold the rent if you're if the landlord's trying to evict you and you want to give this defense, you you have to pay the rent into court. That's what Fritz said. Not not exactly, Your Honor, but okay. it does say that the that the court may order. So may order. It's discretionary. Yes. Okay, 
So it's just a matter of this is a whole different. Well, if it says the court the will three, order. This is one of the three proceedings that Fritz um, talked about. You, you could bring an affirmative action, you could assert a defense to a habitability claim, or you could move out and then assert a defense to payment of rent, right? I, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's, this is a new, um, a new requirement for a new action, a different kind of action than Fritz. Subdivision, subdivision D of point three eight five. It is, and I guess that subdivision, well, subdivision one D. Um, I mean, what that means is that if a tenant has filed a rent escrow action and they fail to pay their rent into court, uh, then or to the landlord if it's been ordered, the action's dismissed. They lose the action. So that is that's a defense. Uh, and the landlord. Yes, mm -hmm. to a rent escrow action, whereas, uh, you know, so the tenant can't just say, well, but because of Fritz, because of the repair problems, I don't owe the rent, so I shouldn't have to post it into court. In Fritz, what the tenant is asserting is that the landlord is bringing a demand, an eviction action against them. They're demanding possession of the premises, and they're also, it's a, a pursuant to 504B.291, it's a demand for rent. And the tenant is saying that I don't owe that rent because of these repair problems, these health and safety problems in the home. And they have withheld the rent. And then after that, yes, does um, generally come some posting requirements. But they do have the right under Fritz to withhold rent in reliance on the defense on that defense. And they lose that when they file a rent escrow action. If we were to read 504B subdivision 11 as including all of the meaning just to say you can't withhold rent or you can't, a tenant's rights under Fritz go away because of all of the procedures in subdivision one, that language would really be meaningless. There would be no reason to, to even make that specification. As I was saying earlier, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going this case is is Fritz. This is exactly the concerns that were raised in Fritz. And to allow a landlord to evict a tenant based on non-payment of rent that the landlord isn't entitled to because the landlord has not complied with their obligations under the law and under their lease contract would completely undermine the purpose of 504B161, and as well as Fritz. Thank you, Council. Mr. Van Nerden, you have five minutes for rebuttal. I would just like to touch on two points briefly here in the rebuttal. Uh, first of all, 
Subdivision 11 of 504B.385. Uh, my friends on the other side kind of want to ignore that last part of Subdivision 11 that says except as, as is provided for in Subdivision 1. Uh, when pressed on that, they say that subdivision, that, that's actually only referring to uh, Subdivision D of Subdivision 1 or Part 1 or whatever that is. There's nothing in the statute that indicates that. I'm not sure where that comes from. Uh, the, the statute could have easily said, except as provided in Subdivision D, but the statute actually says uh, Subdivision uh, 1 and in, in includes that entire uh, different, uh, includes the entire procedures as set forth uh, for uh, uh, an action under 504B.385. Second quick point, Providing written notice is not this, this onerous, uh, draconian requirement that, uh, that it, uh, my, my friends on the other side have made it appear to be. Written notice has never been easier to provide. We've got uh, email, we've got text messages, we've got phones with cameras in them. This isn't a formal notice one must provide. This is just saying put it in writing, put it in a text, put it in an email. Uh, there's nothing that requires any sort of formal notice that's going to be too difficult for uh, somebody to provide their landlord without uh, getting too How difficult. about voicemail? What if I call my landlord and I leave word that there are a host of habitability problems, including the raccoons? Is that sufficient under the uh, rule of law you're proposing? Uh, I don't believe so. I don't think that, that, would, that would qualify as written notice uh, under, under the law that we're proposing. Uh, so I, I guess the answer to that question is no. What do you make of the fact that the first sentence of subdivision one of point of 385 says that if a violation exists in a residential building, a residential tenant may deposit? So does that tell us that this is one alternative among many? Or is that word may mean something different? I think what the word may, Your Honor, means is that this is an option you have. You certainly don't have to bring this action. You could continue to pay your rent and uh, live where you are and not bring the action. I, I think if it said shall, shall, then that would somehow be a directive that you must do that. Uh, may is, hey, if you, wanna, if you want this remedy, here's what you might do. Uh, if you notice if it goes on, it does say shall later on, if you do bring that notice, then you shall pay the rent into court as ordered, things like that. So I, I don't think that the word may has as much of a support for, for the other side's argument. Council, I want to follow up on my question regarding the timing of this 14-day notice. <clears throat> the uh, Amici represented by the Fagri Law Firm have a kind of a nifty chart showing the, um, the seven days from the time service of summons to complaint to the hearing, and then you can get an additional six-day continuance. That adds up to 13 days. So you would have had to have given the written notice before the eviction action starts. Is that chart accurate? Well, technically, that that chart is accurate. In in practice, uh, I, I don't think that's that's how an eviction would run. As I think I, I cite in my brief, uh, Homeline and other uh, Amiki actually uh, advises in their in their uh, in a book they published for tenants that it usually takes twenty to thirty days to bring an eviction. But but more importantly, so wouldn't you then have to give the notice if it's say six days? You'd actually have to give the notice before. Um, a day before the, the eviction hearing? All a tenant needs to do is give notice before they with 14 days before they withhold the rent. 
That's that's the whole that's the whole key here. You can't withhold rent, and then the only way, the only way that would actually play out in practice would be if you're just not paying your rent, and somehow after the fact you think. Oh, oh now, I, now I think I understand your position. It has to be 14 days before you you don't pay the rent, exactly. not 14 days before. Exactly, because if the tenant gives the landlord notice and waits 14 days. If the, if the problem is, is fixed at that point, great, everybody's happy. If it's not, then the tenant can stop paying rent. And it's that action of not paying the rent that gives the landlord the legal right to bring the uh, action for non-payment of rent. So that 14 days has already lapsed by the time the tenant withholds the rent. It's already lapsed by the time the eviction action is. Brought. And would absolutely foreclose a habitability defense at the eviction hearing unless the notice had been given before the, the eviction action not just the eviction action was commenced, but the rent was withheld. I'm out of time, may I answer? Yes. Uh, that, that's not foreclosed because what happens, uh, saying that, let's say that notice wasn't given and then the tenant says, I've got a problem. Under 504B.291, there's a right to redeem. All they have to do is take that rent that they were gonna pay into court, pay it into court or give it to the landlord or whatever the judge orders, and they can uh, then assert that defense uh, and, and give notice at that point. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thanks to both counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.